On the first day of the year, of most years, many people make New Year's resolutions. I'm not saying they keep them. I'm just saying they make them. You know, most people make, the, make their New Year's resolution, and by the end of January or the middle of February, it's long forgotten. But there are good resolutions out there. One of the, there there's a list that uh, Reader's Digest puts out of uh, common resolutions. Number one, get organized. I like that resolution because life sometimes is like a mad dash scramble. Get organized. Another one is exercise more. You know, as, as we get older, that, that one becomes a little more important than it was to us when we were 16 years old. Another one is get more sleep. I really do appreciate that <laughs> resolution. You know, I used to go to sleep at 10.30 and up at 6.30 like a clock. Not anymore. Get more sleep. Another one is break your smartphone addiction. You know, we're just glued to those things. I'll end with this one. The New Year's resolution to take your garbage out the night before garbage day. So you don't have to chase the garbage man down the road with your bags of garbage. Those are all good resolutions. But they're focused on particular things, on particular tasks. It's not that they're unvaluable. They do give some value. But the Apostle Paul gives us a New Year's resolution that is of eternal value. The Apostle Paul, we're going to see this morning in Philippians 3, gives us a, an, a New Year's resolution that is of eternal significance. It's really a big picture New Year's resolution that impacts all things in our life, not just you know, our, our eyes being too fixated on our cell phone or getting the garbage out on time. The New Year's resolution that Paul gives us is a, is a resolution that impacts every aspect of our life. The resolution is this. Live your life with an eternal perspective. Let me say it again. Live your life with an eternal perspective. You know, eye doctors have this thing called monovision. You ever heard of monovision? Monovision is the freakiest thing I've ever heard. Monovision is you put one contact in for reading and another contact in for distance. This eye reads, that eye sees distance, and the brain processes that properly for some people who can adjust to monovision. Or maybe you've got good eyes for distance, but you can't read at all, because just over the years, it just doesn't work anymore. And so you don't need a contact for distance, you just need one contact and you're for reading, and your brain processes that. That's wild to me. So much for random evolutionary chance, right? That's what we need. This is, this is the New Year's resolution. I mean, it's easy to look up close. It's easy to be myopic, right? To see the things of the world. That's where we live. We live in the things that, are, that impact us immediately. Right? I mean, the things of the world are relevant. They're significant. Right? You need money to pay your bills. Right? Your family relationships, your friend relationships, those are important. It's just the things of eternity are the long game. They're eternally important. The things of the eternal one, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, those are forever important. And so the New Year's resolution that Paul's going to give us in Philippians 3 is a resolution 
of the long game, the long play. Because up close is easy for us, because we live in the world of the day-to-day activities. This is the New Year's resolution that we're going to see in Philippians 3. Please turn there if you're not already there in your Bibles. It's not that we're in, you know, we're in a study of John, but we're taking a, a, a break from John this morning, and we're going to Philippians 3. Please turn to verse 10 of that chapter. And as you turn there, the Apostle Paul is in his early 60s when he writes this in terms of age. He's been in ministry approaching 30 years. He's already gone on the, this, the, these incredible missionary journeys, the three missionary journeys. And in verse 10, he is explaining his goal, his life goal, what he is resolved to do, resolution, what he's resolved to do in life. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. That I may know him, the him there is Christ, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So here in chapter 3, the apostle is committed to know Christ. Knowing someone in the Bible is, about, is, is, is a verb of intimacy. He is committed to experience the resurrected Christ. And he's committed to do that in three ways. He's resolved to do that in three ways. Number one, to know the power of his resurrection. Number two, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And number three, to be conformed to his death. I'll address the first one. To know his, the power of his resurrection. That is fascinating to me. This is a man, the Apostle Paul, who craves power. Right? I mean, he wants to have access to the most significant power that exists. There is no greater power than a power that can make a man who has been dead for three days live again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Making dead flesh, flesh, a dead body, alive again, never to die ever again, is a power that is beyond this realm. And Paul says, I want some of that. I want some of that power. This is a power-hungry man, the Apostle Paul. You know the problem with the world? The problem with the world is they're not power-hungry enough. Now, I know I'm stealing a word of the world and using it in a different way, but they do it all the time for us. So why can't I do it once for them? This is the problem with the world. They don't crave the power of God that is everlasting power, that transcends the physical realm They crave the temporary, earthly power. This is the paradox of a godly life, the paradox of the Christian life. In weakness, we have access to power. In humility, in submission to God, which is an act of humility. Faith is an act of humility. It's a thought of humility. In submission, we have access to eternal power. Power. This is the paradox. This is the gibberish, the foolishness to the world. Because the Christian dimension, the Christian paradox of in, in, in humility and weakness and submission to God, we gain access to the power that would raise someone from the dead. That is foolishness to the world. It's just blah, 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 blah. Gibberish. Because the world approaches God in pride. And we are called to approach God in humility. The world is satisfied with the temporary power that is here for a while. 
and then gone for the ages. Paul's not satisfied with that. Paul says, I want access to the power that is for the ages. And this is why he begins knowing Christ. He begins with this statement in verse 10, this resolution, this commitment, if you prefer, of how to know Christ. First, I want to know His power. The power of the resurrection from dead to alive. What we're talking about here is spiritual death versus spiritual life. That's the power of the resurrection, to take that which is dead and make it alive. It's not that Jesus was spiritually dead. It's that the power of the resurrection evidences what God does, that he makes, he, he makes the dead come to life. One of the many things that you have to love about God is God doesn't say, because, believe me, because I told you. God says, believe me, because I showed you. I was a lawyer for almost 25 years, and so my brain craves evidence. And what God says is, I make the spiritually dead spiritually alive, and let me show you. Let me give you physical evidence of the realm that you can't see. Let me give you physical evidence of the spiritual realm and the physical evidence that God makes us spiritually alive, though we are born spiritually dead, dead, is the physical resurrection that hundreds witnessed. The physical resurrection of Jesus that validated his claim. This is what Paul is talking about when he refers first here in this list, in verse 10, first to the resurrection of the dead. Then the second part of him knowing Christ, in verse 10, is the apostle says that he is resolved to know Christ by experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. He's talking about unjust suffering for Christ's sake. The apostle is very familiar with this. He's not writing this book from the Hyatt Regency, from the pool at the Hyatt Regency, sipping on a frozen drink. That's not where he's writing this book from. He's writing the book from his first Roman imprisonment. The apostle is familiar with unjust suffering. Earlier in the book, in the book of Philippians, he spoke about it in chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. How about that for a gospel invitation? Raise your hand if you want to suffer for Christ. See, you don't hear this in churches because it goes against what the consultants advise. It goes against the church marketing strategy. No, we don't talk about that kind of stuff in our church. We don't talk about sin because that's cold and prickly. We don't talk about Christian suffering, which is a guarantee. It's not a maybe. It's a guarantee if you have the audacity to share your faith with someone. We live in a world that is hostile, that is opposed to Christ. And if you have aligned yourself with Christ by faith, then you are assured some form of Christian suffering. Now, praise God, we live in America, and, and we have great religious freedom here. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not enjoy that same luxury. But even here, at a minimum, there's, there's embarrassment. At a minimum, there's criticism. At a minimum, there's the effort to make you embarrassed, is maybe the better way to say it. There's criticism 
for being a Christian. Now, if you live in some states, there's financial persecution for being a Christian. Like if you don't want to support, if you're in a particular service industry and you don't want to support same-sex marriage, for example. California, Colorado, a number of states have laws in place that are used as weapons against Christians. I'm not talking about that. What Paul is referring to here is suffering. Maybe in that sort of form, if you, if you live in California, one of the many reasons we should praise God that we live in Texas. There's all kinds of different suffering. Maybe it's just trying to humiliate you because you're a Christian. Maybe it's a financial persecution in one of those other states. Whatever it is. If you're willing to share your faith with others, which you're called to do, then you're going to have some sort of Christian suffering. This is what Paul is speaking of. The Apostle Peter said something similar in 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose, the purpose that Peter is referring to as undeserved suffering. Called. You're called unto undeserved suffering. This is a message that that our brains, because we're used to seeking comfort, this is a message that our brains say, error, error, error. No, I don't want that. But the Scripture, multiple apostles tell us that this is what we are called to do. Look at it in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There are two extremes. There are two extremes that Christians adopt in response to this biblical doctrine that we are called unto suffering, unto undeserved suffering. One extreme is, I'm an undercover Christian. I'm just not going to let anybody know. Or to quote Tony Evans, 007. You think you're a 007 Christian. I'm a spy. I'm not going to let anybody know I'm a Christian. Because if I tell them, they're going to look at me like I'm a moron. They're going to look at me like I need some sort of intellectual crutch. As many of my lawyer friends look at me. What is wrong with you, boy? What? That is the normal response from an unbelieving world to the Christian here in America. Now, if you live in Lahore, Pakistan, the response is a lot more vitriolic and hostile. Here, we just, we're just looked as, as, as dummies, as intellectual dwarfs, because we need that crutch. So extreme number one is the Christian that says, I'm undercover, I'm not going to let anybody know that I'm a Christian because then something is going to come my way, whether that's some sort of criticism and they're going to think I'm, I'm a dummy or something. That's extreme number one. I'm just not going to identify myself as a Christian. That is contrary to what God has called you to do because you're to be salt and light. You're to be the difference in an unbelieving world, in a culture that hates Christ. You're to be the light Always, always, always be preaching the gospel and when necessary, use words. I love that saying. Now, at some point, you do need to use the words. But 
your behavior isn't enough. You should have behavior that reflects Christ, but at some point you need to speak up and tell them about the gospel, speak the truth in love. So one extreme is the undercover Christian, and the other extreme, in response to this doctrine of undeserved suffering, the other extreme is, I'm going to be sure that I get some rewards, and I'm going to go out and find an opportunity for undeserved suffering. I'm going to look for conflict. I'm going to egg someone on. I'm going to look for a fight. So then they're going to pursue, and I'm going to, tell them that I'm a Christian, so then they're going to persecute me because I'm a Christian, and I'm really looking for the fight, looking for the conflict. These are two extremes. You don't need to go looking for conflict. Don't get outside the plane and try and push it for God. That's not going to go well for you. God will bring suffering according to his terms, not yours. Don't try and put God to the test. Both of these extremes are wrong. To hide from your Christian calling and to go out there and look for a fight, to look for suffering. What you do is you trust the Lord, you obey Him, and every opportunity you get, you communicate Him to others. You serve as the light to an unbelieving world. And if God brings, brings someone who tries to embarrass you, Praise God for that. If God brings conflict and suffering for you because you're not looking for your own glory, you're looking for His glory and you're speaking the truth in love, if He brings suffering for that, then praise God for that. Because then you're obeying Him and you're fulfilling His calling on your life. The calling is not to go out and look for a fight. The calling is to share your faith in Christ with others And that will bring suffering, guaranteed. And in fact, this is what you are called to do. You do it in love, and you do it for the glory of your master. This is entirely countercultural. In fact, it's countercultural in churches. Because many churches shy away from these biblical truths. The third thing from Philippians 3.10 that we're seeing the apostle resolved to do is to know Christ, to experience Christ by being conformed to his death. What does the apostle mean when he says conformed to Christ's death? He means die to self and live to Christ. We see this in Romans 6 where the apostle unpacks it further in Romans 6. Please turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Here the Apostle Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Meganoito in the Greek. No way, no how. It's an incredibly strong negative. Meganoito. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, when you trust in Christ, you have a new identity. You're a new person. Your old identity, the identity that is associated with sin, the identity that is associated with the devil's realm, 
I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this is just the truth. This is the biblical truth. We used to be identified with the devil. We used to serve the devil. Before we came to Christ, that's who we served, not knowingly. And don't think of the devil as some goofy, ugly, silly little creature. No, 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 he's beautiful. Beautiful. Majestic. Powerful. Slick. Persuasive. The most powerful, beautiful creature that came from the hand of God, at least at that time. And so that's who we served before we came to Christ. That was our identity. It was of the devil's realm. Of the devil's domain. The world system. But when we come to Christ, we have a new identity. That old identity that is identified with sin and the devil's world system is dead. Is what Paul teaches us here in Romans 6. Keep reading in verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, this is what's called the first class condition in the Greek. In the Greek, you can take the structure and you can structure your if clauses in different ways. You can structure it as a if and it's true. Translate it almost like a since. You can structure it as an if and eh, it's probably not true. You can structure it as an if and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. First class, second class, third class condition. This is a first class condition. So translate it. You can translate verse 5 as, since, since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, the if there is functioning as a if and it's true, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, your old identity that's, that was identified with sin is dead. When Christ died and you trusted in Christ, now you're linked to his death. He died for sin. Our old identity of sin is dead because it's aligned with what he did on the cross. Dying for your sins. You see the sin link there. The forgiveness, the death of our old sin identity comes about in connection with our faith in the one who died for our sins on the cross. Your old identity as being the sinful enemy of God, which is what we all are before we come to Christ, is dead. You've been reborn. The dead has come to life. It's not that the sin nature is dead. That's not what Paul is teaching here. He's not saying that you no longer have a craving for sin. That's what you have. That's what I have. I wish it wasn't true. But we have a bent towards sin. It's in us. That's what we inherited from our parents. And that's what they inherited from their parents. And so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And that's why Jesus had to be born different. That's why the Savior had to be born different of a virgin. And so Paul is not teaching here in Romans 6 that the, that, that, that the sin nature in us is dead. We're not going to see that sin nature gone until the Lord returns or he takes us home, whichever occurs first. What Paul is teaching is that through Christ's death, we have a new identity. We have a new life. Keep reading in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, again, this is a first-class condition. You can translate it as, now since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our godless culture is obsessed with identity. She identifies that way, and he identifies that way, and I identify this way. And 98% of the time, that identity is identifying with something that God is offended by. 98% of the time, it's identifying with something that is a sin. And so the culture says, I identify with this thing, and therefore I act consistent with that thing. That sin my thoughts, my actions, my words are consistent with my identity. There's actually some truth in that reasoning. The devil, in his brilliance, takes something that's true and he wraps a lie around it and intertwines the lie in it. It's true that when you identify with something, you act consistent with what you identify as. That's true as a general principle and you see it unfold in the world because when they identify with sin they act consistent with that sin well here paul is saying you have a new identity so understand that that's why he uses this phrase consider you see that there in verse 11 consider yourselves dead to sin you have an identity that is dead to sin you need to understand that you need to think that you need to believe that. And if you will, then you'll act consistent with that. You'll think consistent with that. Just like the world acts and thinks consistent with these identities that they have established that are sinful, Paul says, you have a new identity as well. But your identity is, a, is an identity that is dead to sin. Your identity is an identity that is a new life that is associated with the one who is righteous, and if you will consider that, to use the language of verse 11, if you'll consider it, then it will, change how, it will change how you live. It will change how you think. And the physical resurrection of Jesus is what validates the claim that the apostle of Jesus, Paul here, is making. The physical resurrection of Jesus validates that we have been raised spiritually. We have a new life spiritually, a new identity spiritually. And if we will consider that, the Christian life is about your thoughts. Now, sure, your actions are a product of your thoughts. But if you will think the way God tells us to think, if you will follow the mind of Christ, the Scripture says we have the mind of Christ, if you will think that way, it will change your behavior. This is why Christianity is, in many circles of our nation, a joke. I mean, let's just be honest. It's a joke. Because we don't think Christians, by and large, have stopped, at least in our culture, not in other parts. I mean, there are other parts of the world where Christianity is on fire. But in the West, we've stopped thinking as Christians, because we're biblically illiterate, as Christians... I don't want that doctrine stuff. E, yuck. That's cold. That's prickly. Yuck. I want to feel. I want, I've been vaccinated. I took a vaccine from that doctrine stuff. Now I feel. 
And we're, we're, we're chasing a feeling. It's all about a feeling. Jesus said to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, everything about you. Your emotions, true. Your feelings, yes. But your emotions are subject to your thoughts. And that's why Paul goes for the headshot here. It's in our mind. The Christian life is in your mind, and then your actions are a product of it. We're to live it out, to be sure, but it starts in our mind. That's why Paul focuses on here considering these things. Paul isn't saying that we're going to be sinless. He's saying you should sin less, and you will sin less, if you think and consider your new identity which is an identity that is dead to sin. This is what Paul is talking about in our passage in Philippians 3. This is what he's talking about when he says, conformed to Christ's death. Please turn back to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 11. Here we see the reason why the apostle is committed to knowing Christ, to experiencing him. It's because of what the future holds. Look at what the Apostle says in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Philippians. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a different word for resurrection. In verse 10, he used the Greek word anastasis. But here in verse 11, he uses the Greek word ex-anastasis. Anastasis means resurrection. Ex is a prefix that you can use in the Greek, which means out or out from. So this word ex-anastasis, as some have translated it, the exit resurrection. Ex-anastasis is a hapax legomenon. That's a phrase that that, that means it's a word that only happens here. Ex-anastasis is only found here in verse 11. It's found nowhere else in the Bible. Paul uses a super unique word, for a super unique resurrection. He's not talking about the general resurrection. He's not talking about the fact that all believers and all unbelievers will be raised from the dead as the prophet Daniel spoke of in Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about the fact that everybody, believers and unbelievers, are going to be resurrected. He's talking about a special resurrection that demands a special word, ex-anastasis. He's talking about the rapture of the church, which he teaches of in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's special. That's a special resurrection. That's different than the resurrections that will follow. We're next on the clock The rapture of the church is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. It may happen in three seconds. 1001, 1002, 1003. All right, it didn't happen in three seconds. It might happen in 30 minutes. It might happen in three days. It might happen in 300 years. We don't know. I prefer three days. We don't know when it's coming because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. 
eschatology, the things that are coming, impact our ethics. We're told of what is coming. Paul is referring here to the rapture of the church. This is what, what he focuses on. This is what, what motivates him. We're told of what's coming to impact and to influence how we live now. It's not to say, ooh, hey, that's cool. That's going to be neat. It is going to be cool. It is going to be neat. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying we're told of those things, not so we can be obsessed with what's coming, but so that it impacts how we live right now. In light of what's coming, we need monovision. One eye here, one eye on the long game, one eye on eternity. In Philippians 3.11, the apostle is not saying that he's uncertain whether he's going to be in the rapture. Look at that language in verse 11. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's not saying, "Mm, I hope I'm in the rapture. He's not saying that. And we know he's not saying that because he's taught elsewhere, like 1 Thessalonians 4, which I just recited, that all believers are going to be in the rapture. What he's doing here is he's saying, I've resolved to know Christ, to experience him daily, so that at the resurrection, at the rapture of the church, I may claim the prize. I may claim the reward. Do you understand that the writer of Hebrews talks about different types of resurrection? Right? The writer of Hebrews talks about a better resurrection for some than for others. In Hebrews 11.35, the writer of Hebrews speaks of a better resurrection for those who suffered for Christ, honorably. A better resurrection for them. First Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaks of an abundant entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. The word there, the Greek word there for abundant, is the same word for rich. A rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. What we're seeing here is that the resurrection body will have different levels of... That's the best way to say it. In your resurrection body, you will enjoy, some will enjoy more blessings than others. Some will enjoy a better resurrection, meaning... In the resurrection body, they're going to enjoy more blessings forever, more rewards forever, and their entrance into the eternal kingdom will be more rich, more abundant than others. Paul is speaking of eternal rewards, not the rewards that you get, not the benefits that you get by getting seven to eight hours of sleep at night, not the benefits that you get by being more organized in your calendar not the benefits that you get from exercising. All that are real benefits. I'm not discounting any of those. It's just they, they're nothing in comparison to the long game, in comparison to forever. You know what time is in comparison to eternity? It's a rounding error. It's a blip. It's a drop in the bucket. This is what Paul is talking about. There are three things in the Scripture that are given to us as to reasons to obey God. Reasons to honor God. Reasons to serve God. One is because you love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. The apostle of love. The apostle John speaks of in 1 John. Another is because you fear Him. 
because you fear that he's going to take out his belt and whip you and, and it's going to hurt. That's perfectly legitimate. That, that's a good motivator sometimes. Sometimes I need that one. And another motivation, the third is rewards. That's what Paul is talking about here. And I fear that, that when it comes to rewards, we just kind of, eh, we just kind of blow that off and dismiss that. Don't dismiss that, please. The apostle doesn't. The apostle Paul takes this concept of rewards very, very seriously. All three of those are legitimate reasons to obey God. All three of those are laid out in the scriptures. Keep reading in verse 12. It says this, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's important to note here how the apostle uses the word perfect. He uses it two different ways. In verse 12, he says, he has not become perfect. That's what we see right there in verse 12. Now in verse 15, which we won't have time to study today, but I just want to focus on the word perfect in verse 15. In verse 15, he uses the word differently. Because in verse 15, where he's addressing his believing audience and himself, he says, we haven't already become perfect. Verse 12, we're perfect. Verse 15, we're not perfect. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we perfect or are we not perfect? Both. Because Paul is speaking with respect to different contexts. In verse 12, he's using perfect one way, and in verse 15, he's using it another way. The word perfect in the Scripture means complete, whole, having attained one's full purpose. And so in one sense, in one sense, where we, excuse me, verse, verse 12, not already, he doesn't view himself already become perfect, and in verse 15, he says we are perfect. I think I said it the other way around. Verse 15, we are perfect. Verse 12, not perfect. And so we are perfect, complete, whole. Having attained our purpose, our full purpose, we are perfect already. To use the way Paul is using it in verse 15, in the sense positionally. We have a position in Christ because we have received God's righteousness and you can't add anything to that. You can't improve on that. We have a position in Christ that is complete, that is whole, that is perfect. Now that's not how we live, right? I mean, we don't live that way. Our experience, our practice is not perfect. Our identity is perfect. Our practice is not perfect. Our position is perfect but our experience is very imperfect. And that's because it's imperfect, it's not complete, it's not whole. The way we live, even though our, our identity is perfect, our identity is complete, our identity, our position in Christ is perfect, we don't live that way because we live in a fallen, broken world and we are sinners. We live in a body that is infected by the sin nature and that sin nature affects everything about us. Our body is wasting away daily. That's why, you're, you, that, that's why 
your picture looks different than the way you looked when you were 17 years old because our body's wasting away because of our sin nature and because of our own personal sins. I mean, sin itself brings death. But worse than even physical death is our spiritual predilection to wander from Christ. Our desire to dishonor Christ, that's in us because we still have a sin nature. That sin nature, as I, as I mentioned earlier, will not be gone until we are face to face with the Lord. And of course, it's the resurrection that changes all of it. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty two, that great chapter where Paul teaches about the resurrection. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown... A, perishable body it is raised an imperishable body it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body that's when the experiential perfection will happen we don't have experiential perfection we don't have you could say practical uh, perfection because we don't that's not our practice we don't have that today but it will be there will be a time when our practice will match our identity. And that's the resurrection. That's the resurrection that we will enjoy, although it is yet future. So Paul says, I haven't become perfect yet. That's what he says there in verse 12. Experiential perfection is an ongoing process. When he says, I haven't become perfect yet, he's talking about our experience in life, his experience in life, because... He follows the Lord and then bonk. And then he follows the Lord and then bonk. And then he follows the Lord and bonk. He falls and he gets up. And he falls and he gets up. Your Christian life should look something like this. If you were charting it, right? It's donk, 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 donk. But as a whole, it's going up. And so this side of heaven... Maturity, because that's really what Paul's talking about. Maturity is, is a challenge. It's a struggle because we live in a fallen, broken world which is attractive to us. Because we ourselves are fallen, broken sinners, though our identity, though our position is in Christ, is in the one who is perfect. But that's not our practice. And so Paul, in our verse, in verse 12, is talking about our experience. And this side of heaven, maturity, which is the way he's using the word perfection, is a struggle. It's not natural for us. That's why we need the filling of the Holy Spirit to do that, to help us do that, which is supernatural. What's natural is the ways of the natural world. The one who is pursuing experiential perfection, I want to be careful to not use the phrase, the one who is mature. Because I don't want you to think that we get to this plateau and say, oh man, I'm golden. Those guys, they're, 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 they're still baby believers, but man, I am mature. Did you know how mature I am? And the devil says, mm, you are ripe. You are ripe for the plucking. We don't get to maturity. We don't achieve maturity this side of heaven. We're always on our way. But 
the sign of, of, of the one who is pursuing maturity and is on their way to maturity in the spiritual life is the one who recognizes his brokenness, is the one who recognizes his need to rely on the Lord. Look at what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, the Apostle Paul's the man, right? I mean, he's the big dog, the big dog. Look at what he says when he's describing maturity with respect to him. When he's describing his own spiritual life, he says this in Romans 7.22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. See, it's, it all starts in the mind. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. We cannot, we must not, we must not think, I've reached maturity, now I'm golden, and I'm just going to coast from here on out. I'm going to coast till the Lord returns or calls me home. Don't think that. That is a recipe for a spiritual disaster. That is a recipe for you wasting the rest of your life. Wasting God's oxygen. That's not your New Year's resolution for the year 2023. You should always be maturing. Even the last day of your life, when you take your last breath, you should still be seeking to serve the Lord. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ laid hold of Paul for a purpose. It's the same purpose that Christ has laid hold of you. It's the reason that we were saved. right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's salvation. 2, 8 and 9 is salvation by grace. 2.10 is the purpose for salvation. For we are His workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The purpose for which you were saved is to do the work of God. Good works in a world that is hostile to God, in a world that is lost and dying. This is the eternal perspective. This is the eternal perspective. This is the resolution. This is the New Year's resolution. Paul is committed, is resolved to have an eternal perspective. We need wisdom so that we're motivated to do the things of the long game, the things of eternity in a world that seems so immediate, where everything is so immediate. I need this, I need this. We think we need it, but we really just want it. We need wisdom to make judgments, to make assessments. This is where our scripture reading comes in of Psalm 90, verse 12, where Moses, because Psalm 90 is a hymn, is a psalm of Moses. It's the oldest of all the psalms in the Psalter, written by Moses, and he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you, to God, a heart of wisdom. Moses wrote that when he was mature. He wrote that toward the end of his life. He's nearly 120 years old. 
He wrote that after the 40 years of luxury in, in, in Pharaoh's palace, he lived there for 40 years. He wrote that after the 40 years of being in the bush, well, I guess they didn't have that many bushes in, in the desert of Midian, but being in the desert in Midian. Then after almost another 40 more years in the wilderness, where they're traveling in the wilderness, he writes this great hymn, and verse 12 of his hymn in Psalm 90 is a verse that challenges us where Moses prays to God that we would have wisdom. What does it mean to, to, to count your days, to number your days? It means to have a mind that is mindful of your mortality. You hear me say this a lot because it is a huge point in the Scripture. You will not live forever. The, the mortality rate among human beings is 100%. No exceptions. You never hear of someone who's 150 years old. No, it doesn't happen. Everybody dies. Granted, the rapture's coming. Maybe in your generation, maybe not. The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. That's what Moses is teaching. Number your days. Tick-tock, tick-tock goes the clock. Because... Everything that you think is of value today will be gone when you're dead. I say that if you're thinking from a worldly perspective. For that reason, Moses says, number your days. Count the reality. Be mindful of the reality that you're going to be done. And so do things for God. Do things to honor God, to serve God. Have an eternal perspective. Have a long game. Have one eye on eternity and one eye here on the world Because your time in the world is going to be finished. Incredibly short. Very short. In comparison to your time in eternity, which is not a billion years, nor a trillion years, nor a gajillion years, if that's even a number, but a gajillion times a gajillion times a gajillion. And it is for this reason that we should number our days. If we will remember this, it will give us wisdom. Wisdom with respect to an eternal perspective. Very, very important. Paul's point in verse 12 is that he is resolved to press on to do God's work for which he was saved. But in order to do that, he's got to forget the past. Look at verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. We all have failures. We all have failures in our past. All of us. You do, I do. Paul is no exception. Remember Paul, he was, he persecuted the church. He was an accomplice to the first murder of a Christian martyr. Remember Stephen? Stephen is preaching this godly sermon and they hate it so much there in Jerusalem that they pick up stones and stone him to death, a horrible way to die. And Paul, the scripture says, looked on eagerly, approvingly, and he watched the garments of the men who took their garments off to pick up stones to murder Stephen. Paul has many things in the past that he's done wrong. And so he says here, I don't focus on the past. I forget what lies behind. Forgetting here in the Hebrew, Hebrew, in the Greek, is a present tense verb. 
the present tense, he's not saying I do it once or I do it twice. He's saying it's something I do all the time, forgetting what lies behind. He's not saying I just take a, a, an eraser and erase it out of my brain. I, I obliterate it out of my brain. You can't do that. What's in the past, you know about it. He's saying I'm freed. I'm freed from the shackles of my prior failures. They don't consume me anymore, nor is he sitting on his laurels and saying, I was really good back there. I mean, that missionary journey, missionary journey number two, man, that was, that was impressive. And he's not going back in time and just reminiscing and spending all his time focusing on the past in terms of failures or successes. Try driving down the road on the highway and looking only in the rearview mirror. See how long that works for you. No, you can take a glance, but you've got to look forward because you're going forward. The way Paul forgets what's in the past is he focuses on what's going forward. That's what he says, right? Reaching forward to what lies ahead, another present tense verb. He's doing it now. If you're reaching forward, you can't be reaching backwards. He's actively focusing on what's coming. Stretching forward is the idea of this verb, like a runner who pushes himself to the very end and wins by a nose, like in a race, right? And you, you leap forward to beat the guy who's next to you. Now, we're not competing with each other. We're competing with ourselves in this, the, the spiritual life. But there's a prize there's a prize that waits, awaits every believer who serves God. Paul is fixing his eyes on eternal rewards. That's what this is about here in this text. He said it so well in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Run. Run, because life is short. And soon, you're going to get to the end. And we don't know when that is for you or me. Could be today, could be 20 years from today. We don't know when it is. When it is. And so we are to live like today is the last one. And like tomorrow, we're going to be standing before the king, before his throne. Live that way. And if you do that with an eternal perspective, knowing that your identity is secure, that your identity is perfect in the one who is perfect, then it'll change how you live. It'll change how you think. Paul re resolves himself to win the eternal prize, which comes by knowing Christ, by experiencing him on a daily basis, by living consistent with a new identity in Christ as opposed to his old identity. And this is what we are called to do. This is the charge. This is the New Year's charge for you and for me. To live with an eternal perspective, oriented to the things of God. Put on your monovision contacts and run. Run. Because time is short. And I fear that we don't fully appreciate how short it is. If anybody's here without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, or anybody watching on the video, then we want you to know that God loves you. We want you to know that the way of access to eternal life is through Him, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you will do that, then you will be saved. You are the enemy of God, subject to His wrath, subject to His judgment. 
But if you will trust in Christ, then in that instant you will stop being the enemy of God and you will be his child, secure in his coming kingdom. One more thing before we close this morning. We're going to sing Standing on the Promises of God, and then we're going to sing Old Lang Syne. And Old Lang Syne comes to us from the Scottish, loosely translated Old Lang Syne means Oh Long Ago. It's a time to remember. It's a song that, that reminds us of, of ones that we've lost maybe over the past year or years past. Uh, it reminds us of, of things in the past. And so I'm going to close here with a prayer, and then we'll, we'll sing Standing on the Promises of God, and then we'll sing Old Lang Syne. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship today. We ask that you challenge us by these things as we enter a new year. Help us not take eternity for granted. Help us be focused on it. Give us an eternal perspective. Remind us of of our mortality and challenge us to serve you in a world that despises you. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.